what we're going to discover in this series about the gospel is it really does impact every area of how we live our lives. But you know what's interesting? If you were to observe the average Christian, you would probably conclude that we're to be living our lives, spending our time thinking on lofty issues like, you know, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Where should I live? Where should I work? Where should I go on vacation? Who am I going to marry? When am I going to get married? You know, what's my retirement going to be like? But in one of Jesus' last conversations with his disciples, he gave us some very specific instructions where as Christians, how we should be living our lives. It's Matthew chapter 28. We know it as the Great Commission. This is what Jesus said beginning in verse 18. All authority has been given to me. And if you look at it in the context of Matthew 28, I think Jesus was saying to the disciples, now I'm passing that authority on to you. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There's a lot in the Great Commission, but just so you know, there's really only one commandment, and the commandment is make disciples. It's as if Jesus said to his men, listen guys, I'm leaving, you're staying. While I'm away and until I return, you've got one job to do. Don't blow it, don't screw it up. Your job is to make disciples. I'm even giving you the authority to do it. But it's interesting, these disciples, they had the authority to go out and make other disciples, but they knew they didn't have the power to make disciples. And so right before Jesus ascended back to heaven, this is what he said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power. I've given you the authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we knew that that took place one chapter later in Acts chapter 2. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be the carriers of my gospel. And it's going to start in Jerusalem. And then it's going to bubble out to Judea. Then it's going to make its way to Samaria. And ultimately it's going to make it to the ends of of the earth. But I want you to understand as Christians, the reason that we're to be witnesses to the end of the earth is to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. And you can word it any way you want, but that's what every Christian has been called to do. As individuals, that's what we've been called to do. We've been called to make disciples. As a church, we've been called to make disciples. Now, the reality is this every church has a unique personality. Every church is uniquely gifted as to how it's going to accomplish that mission that Jesus gave us to make disciples. Here at Hope, we believe that this is our unique mission. is to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. What that means is this. When you walk into the doors of Hope, we don't care where you've been. We don't care what you've done. We don't care what kind of mess you've made of your life. We don't care what kind of baggage you bring in here with you. We're going to love you. We're going to accept you where you are. But see... Our goal isn't for you to stay where you are. We don't want you to stay chained to the past, to the baggage. In fact, our goal isn't for any of us to stay where we are. Our goal is for each of us to become the disciples that we can become as we follow Jesus. And in the process of following Jesus, he transforms our lives. And this is what happens. See, as our lives are changed, our families are changed. And as our families are changed, our neighborhoods are changed. And as our neighborhoods are changed... Our community is changed. And as our community is changed, the triangle is changed. And we really believe that if we can reach the triangle, we can change the world. At Hope, that is our goal. That's why we exist as a church. In fact, let me just show you since 1994, 22 years ago, when we moved here and started the church, how God has taken us on that journey. Watch this video. You know, 22 years ago, I knew God wanted me to start a church. I had no idea where. Money Magazine had just picked the triangle as the number one place to live in America, 1994. 
I said, if all these people are going to be moving into the triangle, they're not going to go to the church I grew up in. And so we moved here to start a church that maybe would be attractive to people, especially people who were disenfranchised with church. You know, when we moved here in 1994, we had no money, no budget. We had a few people, maybe five families. We just started going door to door and inviting people to church. And finally, Easter of 1994, we had our first service. You know, eventually we were in East Cary Middle School and we grew, but they were going to remodel, so they told us we had to move out. So finally we found this commercial space over on Chapel Hill Road. It was this little dirty room. I got everybody together and we tried to share some vision of, of how we could impact the kingdom in this little mess. We outgrew our building there on Chapel Hill Road, but because we were reaching so many new people and unchurched people, it takes a while for their giving to catch up. We just began to pray. We had a 24-hour prayer vigil. It started at 5 o'clock on a Friday and went to 5 o'clock on a Saturday night. Within two days, someone had put me in touch with a man who owned some property on Buck Jones Road. He had been looking for a church to give it to for over 20 years. And I thought, well, there's no reason that he would pick us. And after about a year and a half, one day at Bob Evans here at Crossroad, he shook my hand and he gave us the piece of property. But we promised God at that time that if he would provide, we would build a church that would impact and change our community. And we knew because of the people we were reaching, the way we were able to give back to the community, that God's dream was being fulfilled through us. We built this building and thought, man, we're set for life. And uh, before long, we went from two services to three services to four services, and we had parking issues, and we knew that we had reached our capacity here at the Raleigh campus, and that's when we decided to launch our first campus at Holly Springs High School. The, the one thing we really learned about Holly Springs is if you live in the community where your campus is, you're, you're much more open to the idea of inviting someone to your campus. Plus, being from the community, they began to take on and address the needs of their own community and we just realized there was incredible value in this. Then a few years after we successfully launched Holly Springs, we had the opportunity to launch Mooresville. So again, we sent out about 300 people and God began to work there. You know, we came here to be a community church and if you're gonna be a community church, you have to reflect your community. And so God led us across the path of Chris and Jacqueline Jones, who were already making a tremendous impact at Ship of Zion in downtown Raleigh. The best thing we could do would be come alongside of them, maybe share with them some of the things we've learned over the years, make sure that they were resourced and have the opportunity, and then turn them loose to do what God had already prepared and trained them to do. A few years ago, my son was working here with Global Hope, and he took a trip to Haiti, and it was there that he met a man named Jean Elise. Had his own business, but over the years had started nine churches, two schools. And I asked him one day, sitting at his house in Haiti, what is your dream for Port-au-Prince? And he literally described a Haiti version of Hope Community Church. And I knew that this was a God moment. January, I was there for the two-year anniversary. Over 2,400 people in attendance in just two years. And I had the opportunity with Jean-Elise to baptize 118 brand new believers. Our vision here has been to reach the triangle and change the world. And what we meant by that, we believe that the triangle is such a, uh, an impactful area of the world that if you reach people here, if you reach college students here, businesses here, they're going to take the gospel with them. A couple that came from France was transferred here as an electrical engineer, found Christ here, got involved in a small group, began to share. Now they've gone back to Grenoble, France. They've pulled together a group of people. They're in a town of 50,000 college students who desperately want to learn how to speak English. And there they're addressing that by having an English-speaking church. And they're asking us, can we come alongside and could we partner with them? So we're actually seeing that dream become a reality and we're so excited about it. But yet at the same time, we have an obligation to continue to reach our local community. Jesus made it very clear, you reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then you go to the other parts of the world. And the bigger we build our base here at home with our financial resources, the more opportunities we have to make impact in our community and abroad. So we'll never stop building campuses. 
after Apex. We have Garner and Clayton area. Uh, we have the North Raleigh area. We're, we're looking at the opportunities and thinking, how can we leverage our resources? And it's going to cost us, but how do we leverage our resources to truly reach the triangle and change the world? And that's the journey that God has taken us on. But I want you to understand it continues. Just a couple of weeks ago, I received word that we have the possibility to secure a facility that would allow us to finally launch a campus in Sanford. It's an area where we've had hundreds of people traveling up every weekend, but we thought if we can get them a campus in their own community, they're going to be able to reach that community. Uh, Ship of Zion, we bought them a building in downtown Raleigh about three years ago. They filled it up once, went to two services. Now there are three services on Sunday morning packed out. We've got to address that. How can they have maximum impact there in southeast Raleigh? Uh, just like Frank and Janet went back to France and want to, help us start, want us to help them start a campus there, we have a family that was a big part of Hope Community Church, and they went down to Panama, not Panama City, the real Panama, to retire, and they've contacted us and said, this place is ripe for a campus. Is there a way that Hope can get involved? And so we have all kinds of great opportunities before us, but I want you to understand, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, before we can really move forward with any of these other opportunities, we, we've, got, we've got to finish up our Apex campus. I mean, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, any man who, who puts his hand to the plow and takes on a mission, takes on a project, and then turns around and looks over his shoulder and quits, he says, that guy's not even worthy for the kingdom of God. I want to make sure we're worthy for the kingdom of God, right? We put our hand to the plow, now we've got to make sure that we finish strong our Apex building. And just so you know, again, it's it's not a worship center like this worship center here in Raleigh. It's a community center. It has a gymnasium. On the weekends, we'll sit 1,500 people. During the week, it's two full basketball courts, six volleyball courts, so we can bring community in. There's weightlifting facilities and aerobic rooms and coffee shops and, and, and health bars and all of those kinds of things. 350 children can be kept in daycare there, corralled in daycare there every day. And, uh, but it's a whole, the whole reason to bring the community in and in the process of building relationships, share with them the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I told you that we needed to raise $1.3 million above our regular giving in just six weeks by May 20th uh, so that we could keep construction moving forward toward completion. You probably want to know how you did. Are you a little curious? How did we do, guys? There you go. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I wasn't even surprised. I knew that you guys would respond because that's the way you always respond because you get our vision. But let me just say this. Why is our Apex Campus, why is it so crucial to what God has called us to do as a church? How does it fit into our mission? Well, think about it this way. First of all, when you think about Apex and Holly Springs and our campus that's in Holly Springs High School that runs about 2,000 people every weekend, they're going to be moving into that Apex facility there. It's really going to impact Apex, Holly, Holly Springs, and our great friends out in Fuquay, great Americans out in Fuquay. And, uh, and so we're excited about that. But think about it. That is our Jerusalem and our Judea. And you never stop reaching your Jerusalem. You never stop reaching your Judea. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Israel. I was in Jerusalem where it all started. Guess what? There are people in Jerusalem who are still sharing the gospel and who are still making disciples. You never stop reaching your Jerusalem in Judea. That is a mandate that God has given us. And so we're going to continue there. But see, second, God has also blessed us with the opportunity to live. I want you to think about this in one of the most affluent areas in the world. Did you know that? Did you know that if you have a household income of $77,000, you rank in the top 5% of the richest people on the planet? $77,000. 
Well, you can do the research, but Holly Springs has a household income of about $86,000. Apex, about $89,000. Kerry, over $90,000. And even it goes up higher as you get into Morrisville. But have you ever asked why God allowed us to live in this area? I mean, good thing. Have you ever wondered, wow, I could have I had to grow up in China or Haiti or the Central African Republic. Why did God allow me to live in such an incredible area? And you may think, well, fate, fate, or, or I just got lucky, maybe karma. But there's actually a theological reason. Paul talked about it, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He says this, from one man, and it's a reference to Adam, he, being God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed time, and he set the boundaries of their land. What that verse is saying, and if, especially if you tie it into other verses in, in the Bible, is that God picked where we were going to live. God chose when we were going to live there. In other words, we are here because God chose us to be here right now. And we get to live in this area that has all this affluence, has all this extra expendable income. Now, have you ever wondered why God allowed us to do that? Well, if you can answer that question, you got to answer another question. And the question is this, and I know people love these kinds of questions. How does God view our money? We got all this money. How does God view our money? And some of you are thinking right now, that's easy. He just wants it. Well, let me just say this. If God wanted your money, he would just take it. After all, that's what the government does, right? They just take it. And God's greater than the government, so if he wanted your money, he would just take it. So you can relax. If he wanted it, he would have already taken it. So why did God choose us to be so blessed, to live in this affluent area? Why did he choose us to have more than we really need? Do you think it was so we could quit working and just sit around and do nothing? Do you think it was so we could make a lot of money and leave it to our kids and screw up their lives? Do you think it's so we, out of all the people in the world, wouldn't have any financial worries and stress? Or, or maybe we could just continually increase our lifestyle? Well, it's interesting, and you can study it on your own. But according to James chapter 5, God gives us more than we need so we can help those who are in need. And let me just say something. As we've gotten bigger, uh, we've lost a little bit of our edge when it comes to helping people in need, especially in our local community. And I think part of it is the staff has gotten bigger and a lot, a lot of the grassroots movements, a lot of things that you did are still happening, but they're happening uh, from more of a, an organized staff position and you're not getting to be a part of it. I want you to know we're going to get back to the way we used to be. I'll give you an example. Did you know a few years ago, we have an incredible number of homeless people that worship with us every weekend. They came from behind, behind the building, behind the facilities. They live out in the woods here in their cardboard boxes. They would come and worship with us every weekend. In fact, one of the largest funerals we ever had here in Hope Community Church in this auditorium was for a homeless man named Roger who impacted our church in a big way. We used to have white flag nights. And when he got cold outside, we would open our building, and all the homeless from this area would come into our building. And many of you would come and spend the night with them, and you would make sure they're fed, and you would make sure they had a chance to take a shower. Did you know we have a laundry room in this building for the community who can't afford to do their laundry? We would make sure they got to do their laundry. We would they would, we'd make sure they had a good night's rest. And you would stay here not just to take care of them, but actually to build relationships with them. And somehow we kind of got away from that. 
We used to have clothing swaps where we would ask you for a couple of weeks and we would put big containers out in the parking lot and we would go through our closets and, and, and drawers and we would bring everything in that we weren't wearing, we hadn't worn in a while. And then volunteers would come in and they would set up the atrium and they would put men's and women's and children's and sizes and people would line up starting at 6 o'clock in the morning. We would open the doors at 9 and they would come in and they would take everything they needed. In fact, one time they actually took our microwaves and our high chairs out of the gathering place. I guess they needed them. And we actually celebrated that. We thought that was so cool. I'm telling you, we're going to get back to that. In fact, we have a clothing swap already on the calendar. You'll be hearing more about it coming up in the early fall. We're going to get back to stuffing backpacks with school supplies for children who are under-resourced and make sure that they have them by the time school opens next year so they can start in, in, in a good place on a good foot. We're starting a one-on-one -on -one tutoring set, uh, session for under-resourced kids uh, afternoons here at the Raleigh campus twice a week. You're going to be hearing more in just a couple of weeks how you can be a part of that. But I'm telling you, we are going to get back to our roots because we understand the principle. God gives us more than we need so that we can help those who are in needs. And if you think about it logically, it just makes sense that we continue to reach our Jerusalem. We continue to reach people who have more than they need because when we do that, as we build our base, it allows us to reach those who are in need. But understand, it's not an either or, it's both. They go hand in hand. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit this weekend. How do we continue to do that? So if you have your Bible with you, turn over to Luke chapter 16. And as you're turning, let me just say this. If you're visiting this weekend, it's a great time for you to be here because you're going to hear the heartbeat of Hope Community Church. You're going to discover what we're all about, and we're not a country club. We're not here so you can show up on the weekend, feel inspired, find a few things out about how, how to have better relationships, and then just go on back into your world. We believe that we are a movement that was placed here by God to make a difference in the world. And this weekend, we're going to talk about how that can happen. Luke chapter 16, I'll warn you ahead of time, this is a parable that Jesus taught, and it's about our money. It's about our stuff. It's about our treasure. And Jesus, I believe, had one goal in mind when he delivered this parable. It was to help us see our stuff the way God sees our stuff. Because if we can begin to see our stuff the way God sees our stuff, then we can begin to understand what God has called us to do with our stuff. So that's what we're going to talk about. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is what he says in verse 1. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he summons this guy in verse 2 and says this, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. By the way, that's just another way of saying, give me the books. Something's fishy. There's going to be an audit. Now, we don't know what this guy was up to. We don't know if he was just not paying his bills. We don't know if he was embezzling. But this rich man gets word that this guy who's supposed to be managing his financial affairs, managing his estate, is doing a horrible job. So he says to him in verse 2, you cannot be my manager any longer. Now notice verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? And I'll just let you know that is a key word. In fact, all through this parable, you're going to find words that have to do with time. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. See, he knows when that audit comes back, he's toast. He knows that he's going to be unemployed. So he immediately begins to think about what he's going to be able to do with his life. What can I do now that I'm going to lose this job? And he, maybe he thinks, you know, I could dig ditches. But then he remembers he really doesn't have the physical aptitude for that. And he thinks, you know, maybe I could start a daycare, preschool. There's got to be money in that. But then he remembers he hates children. And he thinks, well, maybe I could wait on tables. But then he remembers that he hates adults. 
So he takes the Myers-Briggs, he gets some vocational testing, because he knows when word of what he's done hits the street, he's not going to get another management position like this one. He knows he's not going to get another gig like this. So he realizes, wow, i got a little window of time. I've got a little window of opportunity. And he ponders, what am I going to do with this little bit of time? What am I going to do with this little bit of opportunity so that when I no longer have this job, I'll still be taken care of. So that I'll still have a roof over my head. So that I'll still be able to put food on my table. And he comes up with this ingenious plan, verse 4. I know what I will do so that when, again, time, time. I know what I will do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. In other words, people will still like me. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, I think implied before the boss shows up, and make it 400. So he cuts this guy's bill in half. In other words, with a few strokes of the pen, he saves this guy tons of money. Now, of course, this guy's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you ever need anything, I mean anything, you let me know. And this guy's like, don't worry, I will. Probably sooner than you realize, right, right? Verse 7, and then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he takes this guy's bill, cuts it 20%, and this guy's like, thank you, thank you. If you ever need any, if you need me to pick up your kids from school and take them to soccer practice, if you need your yard work done, whatever it is, you let me know. And the guy's don't trust me, I will. Probably sooner than you realize, right? And I'm sure that everybody's sitting around that day listening as Jesus is telling this story. They're thinking, wow, this guy is such a jerk. This guy is such a loser. But the real shock of the story comes in verse 8. When the rich man, the master, discovers what his manager's been up to, that he's been cutting everybody's bills, it says, the master commended the dishonest manager. He said, wow, you're good. You were brilliant. Now I remembered why I hired you. It's too bad I got to let you go, right? But he commends this guy, and we're like, are you kidding me? Why would he commend this guy for being a thief? Why would he commend this guy for ripping him off? Well, it was because the manager realized he had a little bit of time, and he had a little bit of opportunity. And so he decided to leverage his time and opportunity so things would work out for him in his Future. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, here's the moral of the story, verse 8. For the people of this world, and that's a reference that Jesus is making, people who aren't his followers, people who aren't believers. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light, than the people who are believers, than people who are actually his followers. And then Jesus gives some insight into why he told this parable. And he explains it. And this is unique because rarely did Jesus ever explain a parable. Often Jesus would talk in parables and they didn't understand what he was talking about. And they'd ask follow-up questions and Jesus would say something like, uh, yeah, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And they're like, what? What does that mean? You know, this time Jesus explains it. Look what he says, verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth. The New American Standard, if you have that translation, says use unrighteous Mammon. And that's actually a better translation because, see, the word mammon doesn't really mean money. It means stuff. It includes your money, but it's not just your money. It would include your house. It would include your car. It would include your 401K. 
your furniture, your butterfly collection, your stamp collection, your china doll collection. It would include all of those things. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth. Use your stuff to gain friends for yourself. Now look at this. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's Jesus referring to heaven. Now be very, very careful. Jesus isn't saying that you can buy your way into heaven. He's not teaching here that you can bribe your way into heaven with your stuff, your wealth, your treasure. Jesus is saying this. All of our stuff, all of our wealth, all of our treasure, it's a tool. It's a resource to impact people in this life. And he's saying if you use your treasure and if you use your stuff the right way, when you die and when your life is over, if you're a Christian, when you walk into heaven, this is what he's saying. There will be people in heaven to welcome you because of how you used your stuff. Let me put that in perspective. Remember a few years ago when we were literally raising hundreds of thousands of dollars, over a million dollars we raised to drill wells in the Central African Republic out in the rainforest with the pygmies to start churches with African pastors. If you sacrificed and made that happen, that verse is saying that when you get to heaven and you walk in, there are going to be some pygmies that walk up to you and say, you don't know me, but I want to thank you because you sacrificed and you made it possible for me to hear the gospel, and now I get to spend eternity in heaven with you. I mean, how cool is that? Or if you, if you gave and sacrificed when we built the orphan worship center in that village in Uganda, there will be orphans from Uganda who say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, because of your sacrifice I heard the gospel. I was able to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and now I get to spend all eternity with you here in heaven. Our people from Haiti who are going to give you that same message, you will hear that in heaven. In other words, Jesus encourages us to use our stuff, to use our, our treasure in such a way that people follow him. His kingdom is expanded. So as Christians, I think this is the question we have to ask ourselves. How do I use the stuff that God has entrusted to me to influence people for his kingdom? Or maybe a better question, what's the best way to use my stuff so that when I stand before God and have to give an account of how I use my stuff, I'll be proud of how I managed it, right? I mean, see, that's, 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 a, that's pretty compelling stuff right there. That's a lot different than <gasps> what percentage do I have to give? See? Or how much is enough? Or do I give off my net or do I give off my gross? Or if I give, does that mean I don't have to serve? Or if I serve, does that mean I don't have to give? You see, now we're beginning to understand that according to Jesus, there are eternal ramifications to how we handle our stuff. It is a tool. It's a resource. But it's more than that. It's also a test. Verse 10, Jesus says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, if you haven't been trustworthy in handling your stuff, who would trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, if you've been paying attention, now it's starting to sink in. Now it's starting to make sense. In fact, I think even the disciples, I don't even think those guys were that bright. I think they begin to get it at this point. But if it still hasn't clicked, if the light hasn't come on yet, this is what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was teaching here, in this life, at best, 
in this life, at best, we will have very little. And it's because all of our stuff connected to this life is temporal. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, the 70, 80, 90 years you get on this earth, at best, at best, you're going to be able to accumulate stuff that's going to spoil, evaporate, rust, corrode, burn, get stolen. It's stuff that's temporal. It's stuff that has no eternal value. But he was also teaching this. Even the little we have isn't really ours because here's the principle. Everything we have comes from God. I mean, here's four words that will change your whole perspective on your stuff. God owns it all. And it tells us throughout the scriptures, he gives as he sees fit. He gives more to some than to others. But whatever we have, it comes from God. He owns it all. We are just managers. And so I think this is what Jesus is saying. And maybe Jesus pulled the first Robert De Niro. I'm watching you. Maybe he looked, I'm watching you to see how you used my stuff. And I'm especially curious to see how you used the little because I know if I can trust you with the little, I can trust you with a lot. In other words, if I can trust you with stuff that's going to rot and rust and corrode, then I know I can trust you with stuff that has eternal value. And so when you get right down to it, all of our stuff is really nothing more than a test to see what we're really committed to. And then Jesus, hey, how are you guys today? Are we having fun yet? See? I get in extra security on whenever we have to have this conversation a couple times a year. But anyway, verse 13, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the others, or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's mammon again. So literally it says you cannot serve God and stuff. And see, we would expect Jesus to say, you cannot serve God and the devil. doesn't say that. He says, you can't serve at the same time God and stuff. And God says, all I have to do is look at how you handle your stuff. And it tells me all I need to know about you. It tells me what your priorities are, your values are. It tells me how you, who you worship and what do you really follow. And as I said, right now I can feel the tension and the anxiety and the anger and maybe the fear, right? I know some of you are thinking, great, I finally show up from church and this jerk's trying to separate me from my money, right? I know that's what some of you are thinking. This isn't my first rodeo. But this is what it basically comes down to. It comes down to this. Can you trust God? Because Jesus said this, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And I'll take care of everything else. So this is the question. Well, wait a second. If I seek first the kingdom of God, if I, even if I put God first when it comes to my stuff, Here's the big question. Can I trust him that he's got my back when I need him? Now, this may take some pressure off. Jesus knows what you need. He understands the culture we live in. He knows you got to eat. He knows that you have to wear clothes. He knows that you probably have a mortgage. Kids are going to go to college. He knows that you have to pay for health insurance. He knows you've got to think about retirement one day. It has nothing to do with those things. Is can I trust him if I put him first, he will take care of me. Lauren and I have been married 37 years. And we agree on a lot of things. We disagree on a lot of things. For example, we disagree on this. I think it's perfectly reasonable and acceptable. And she is so nervous right now. See, this was easier last night when she was speaking at Ship of Zion. I think it is perfectly reasonable to eat your corn and butter beans with a spoon. Because I'm a redneck from Durham. 
But see, she grew up in Southern California. She's sophisticated. She went to the little school of Miss Manners, and she says that is inappropriate. You get, you get to use your spoon to stir your coffee. You get to use the right spoon to eat your soup, maybe some dessert, but you don't get to use your spoon to eat off your plate. So if, if I were to do that, I'd get my hand smacked because we disagree on that. Here's another one. I think it's perfectly okay if you're eating a bowl of soup and you get to the bottom. You know how hard it is to get stuff out with a spoon? I think it is perfectly acceptable. Pick that bowl up and, right? Well, we are at Ray's one night, and I found out that is not acceptable, right? I mean, <laughs> I've, I've said this for years. I think if you're married, you ought to have sex every day. I think that is perfectly reasonable. Laura does not think that is reasonable. <laughs> she thinks we should have sex twice a day. No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. We, 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 we don't agree on everything. We don't agree on everything. You guys pray for her. <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> this is what we always agree on. For some reason, we've always been able to agree on this. Everything we have belongs to God. And he, if he says give, we give. And if he says give a little more, we, we give a little more. Because in our, in our minds, we're just, we're just managers. You say, well, why would anybody live that way? I mean, we have people here that give 10%, 15%, 20%. Some give even more than that back to the church so we can do what we do around the world. Why would anyone live like a like, little verse, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure, your stuff is, there your heart will be also. Let me tell you something. You show me an individual who has given themselves first and fully to God, I'll show you a person who has a generous spirit. Not just with their treasure, their time, their talent. Right now, we are seriously in need of people who will serve. First impressions, people to park the car, smile when you walk in the door, make sure you get a seat. We desperately need people to do that. We desperately need people who will volunteer and, and pour into our kids in Kids City and student ministries. But so many people want to just show up and leave. But I'm telling you, when, when God has your heart... Those, you know, we, we did a little research. You know what we found at Hope Community Church? The people who give the most serve the most. Do you know why? Because that's where their treasure and their heart is. But my point is it becomes a life habit. It's not about your money. It's not about your time. It's about your heart. I love Abraham Lincoln. He said this, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. When the heart is right, you just do the right thing. And so this is what I'm praying over the next few months of this year. By the way, let me just say this. Uh, we, we, we raised $1.4 million above our regular giving in six weeks. And now I told you we had to raise overall this year $4 million above our regular giving to finish the Apex campus. That means we only have $2.6 million left, but we have 31 weeks. In my mind, that's a piece of cake, right? And so this is my prayer as we move toward the end of the year, that God will do absolutely something incredible in our hearts and our lives. We don't take offerings as it is. I would love never to have to have these conversations because our heart is right and our feet are swift. You say, Mike, I don't even know how to get involved around this place. You don't, you don't take any offerings. We just assumed you didn't need anything. So let me, just, let me just give you a couple ideas. This is called the giving ladder. If you've never given, just give for the first time. You might get a cold chill up and down your back and sweat a whole lot, and some of you won't know what to do, but just do it. Just try it one time. You may like it, right? You can go to the phone app. You can write a check and put it in the box in the atrium. You can, you can have it automatically drafted out of your checking account. Just give one time. 
See how it feels. See how it feels. Second, by the way, let me just say when you give to Hope Community Church, I know there's, there's this image sometimes that pastors run everything and take all. Listen, I have a board. I have a finance team. I'm given a salary every year just like you are. I'm reviewed twice a year just like you are. They tell me how I'm doing, what I can work on. I have nothing to do with finances. I don't have the codes to the finance office. I don't have the combinations to the safe, and I don't sign any checks around here. I just want you to know that. So this is not about me. This is about us together doing what God has called us to do. So you can give for the first time. Second, maybe you can become an occasional giver, you know. Maybe you get a good scratch-off ticket in the lottery, and you think, well, I got five extra bucks. I think I'll give it to Hope. Or, or you, you have great poker night on Thursday night, but you got a little money you weren't planning on. But you're like, man, I, I could get involved occasionally. Maybe you're not doing it every week or every month, but as God blesses you, he gives. Maybe you get some income tax return. You think I'll give a little bit of it to Hope. But we would encourage you at some point become an intentional giver. And it just means that intentional givers, I'm going to take one, two, three, five percent of my money every month, and I'm going to give it to Hope Community Church. I'm just going to do it. And that would be a huge step. By the way, this is all about becoming a growing disciple. Because as a disciple, God gets every aspect of your life, not just parts of it, right? So I'm going to be intentional in my giving. I believe that this is the standard God, the Bible wants all of us to get to. It's where we start tithing. We just give 10% off the top. And I will tell you the secret of doing this is giving it first. Because if you give 10% off the top, you're forced to learn to live within 90%. And being in the fact that we live in the most affluent area, one of the most affluent areas in the world, we ought to be able to live off of 90%. See, God could have said, give me 90% and keep 10, but he's very generous. He says, no, you go ahead and keep 90. You got to eat. You got to pay the bills. Just give me 10. I think, this is, I think this is a sign of growing spiritually, that you're getting to the point where you're beginning to trust God. And, but I think as Christians, a lot of people think this is where you stop, and it really isn't. Because, see, you can get here, and your income, your salary keeps going up, but you just keep giving 10%, but you don't really need as much as you used to as you get older. And so that brings up the abundant giver. And we have a lot of people who fall in this category. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Laura and I, we give 20% of our income back to Hope Community Church. And then we support charities. And then we do missions outside of Hope, like Young Life and Crusade, or support people when it comes up. But ultimately, I think this is the goal. When we realize God's given me more than I need, so I can either keep spending it on myself, or I can invest it back in the kingdom of God. See, if we would each, wherever we are on this ladder, take a step, I'm telling you, over the next few months, it would be a no-brainer. But I'm going to tell you again, it's not, it's not about your money. It's about your heart. So this is just what I'm going to ask you to do this weekend. I'm going to ask you to decide in your heart before God what he wants you to do. See, that's better than any commitment card. Because a lot of you filled out commitment cards. That didn't impress you. But if you make a commitment to God, if you go to God, see, when, when Laura and I got to this point, you know how we did it? We took some time to pray about it. She prayed about it. I prayed about it. We came back and said, what do you think? What do you think? We had the exact same number God had given to it. And when God, when that happens, it's like, well, then this is what God wants us to do. It's a no-brainer. Obviously, God will have our back. We're just going to be obedient. That's, that's what I'm hoping for you guys, that you'll get to the point where you realize, see, if you're sick, what's the first thing you do? You hope that God has your back, right? When you have financial troubles, don't you want to think that God has my back also? But you got to get to that place where you just trust him. So I'm praying, I'm praying that God will do something in our lives, not just so we can finish the apex building. I'm praying that God will do something in our hearts and our lives so we can just live this way. I mean, good gracious, if you begin to live this way, not only will you be supporting the kingdom of God, you will actually have better personal financial practices. 
because you're, getting to, you're beginning to display some discipline in your lives and living within your means and knowing at the same time God has your back. You see, our future at Hope is incredibly bright as it relates to the kingdom of God. And I'll just tell you, for, for all those things, all those possibilities to become a reality, God doesn't need our bank accounts. He just needs our hearts. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart. Remember the widow's mite? She gave what she had, and Jesus was more impressed than anybody else. It's not about the money. It's about the heart. Here's one of my favorite verses. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. To strengthen those. Listen, allow God to strengthen your heart. Maybe this is the weekend when you walk out of here, you go straight back to first impressions and say, how, how do I get involved in serving? Or, or find someone who's serving and say, how, how do I get involved? Or when you go to Kid City to pick up your kids, how do I get involved? How can, how can I make a difference? You pray about what God wants you to do financially. If you get your heart there, your feet will be swift. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we get to be a part of changing the world. You could have picked angels. You could have picked the animals. They would have definitely been easier to work with. But you chose us. And you said, your plan A, there is no plan B. And that God, Father, help us understand, if we don't do it, it will not get done. So I pray that we will be a church like Acts chapter 2, that was so involved in each other's lives, so involved in the community. The people of the community looked at the church, and it doesn't mean they all became Christians or believers. They didn't all join the church, but they were so impressed with the church. They thought, there's something different about this, God. Help us be the church, God, that if for some reason we ever had to shut our doors, there would be a void in this community and in the world because of the difference we're making for you. We love you. We trust you. And thank you for taking us on this exhilarating ride. In your name we pray.